This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. This week's episode of The Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stamp mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if, if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 209 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. This week we have a special guest, and that is Curtis McHale. Hello. Now, Curtis, you used to be a panelist on the show, but do you want to kind of fill us in on what you've been up to lately? I've been doing, I guess, everything else I've been normally doing before when I was on the show, just not uh, not being on the show. It wasn't working at that point. So I am a WordPress developer mainly, and then I am doing more and more business coaching now. Cool. Business coaching for... Internet businesses or consultants or what? I focus on internet businesses, but one person who really likes to talk to me is not decidedly not an internet business. He works for uh, now currently the Salvation Army, but was the regional manager for all the dollar stores in BC and Alberta for a long time. So, Oh, cool. Well, we brought you on today to talk about proposals. I will point out that we had Brendan Dunn on talking about proposals about a month ago, I think. Uh, the difference is, is that he, we spent a lot of time just talking about the logistics of making proposals sort of your first line product when you're bringing people on. So making people pay for, for the proposals. We did talk a little bit about building proposals, but I don't think we got too deep into the weeds on that. What's kind of your take on writing proposals? Do you charge for them as a product up front or is that just part of landing clients? And then the other question I have is, how do you usually structure yours? Whether you charge or not, I think depends on their size as well, right? It's been a while since I've talked to Brennan, but many of his clients were very high priced. And so even what the discovery phase would be, you know, quite a while, a couple weeks. Most of my clients, the discovery is a 30 minute phone call and then some emails back and forth and maybe another 30 minute phone call at the max, but that's not even very often. Or the repeat clients, I've worked with them lots. And so again, we have a quick phone call, hash out a few details that were up in the air and then move on to the proposal. So if it's getting longer than that, like if I have to do discovery phase, dive into some of their site code or anything, then yeah, we absolutely charge for it. That makes sense. And I think, yeah, I think Brennan focuses on the larger price tag engagements, or he did when he was consulting. Yeah. And then you asked about format as well, right? Yep. What does so your, what do, your form, uh, proposal look like? I do six main sections and they start with the current problem. So that is what is the current problem the client has. And when you do that section, by the end of that, you want them to be nodding their head saying, yep, yeah, that's exactly what my problem is. 
The second uh, is the objectives. And in that, we're listing the high-level objectives, right? So if I'm building someone a new store, I'm saying, hey, by the end of this, we will have a store that functions and sells products. We're not going into every technical detail here. We're just selling them on, on that objective. Next is gauging success. So how are we going to gauge success? And this is to show them that you're not just dreaming about it. We actually have some metrics to look at. Fourth is the options you're going to provide to them. Um, you can up your what you're going to earn just by just by providing some options. A big mistake a lot of people make here is the first option doesn't actually qualify for the project for the client. So if the client wants an e-commerce store, the first one doesn't include the store. I've even done this, which is ridiculous. I did this last year once and I looked at the proposal later after when I was writing the book and I was like, that's a bad, terrible proposal because the first one wasn't even what the client wanted. Fifth is timeline. Timelines are tied to your to the options, right? So option one, it would be say four to six weeks. Option two would be six to eight weeks and on, depending on how long things take. And then the accountabilities, what is each party responsible for? This is where I also lay some groundwork for telling clients that I'm going to tell them no, uh, which I probably have even in the proposal process up front where I'm going to say, we don't, we're not going to do this. That's a terrible idea. And that we also get them to commit to doing what's best for their users, not just what they like. So Curtis, can you talk more about that options thing? Like you gave an example of a proposal where the lowest option I didn't understand was it, was it basically less than the minimum they wanted or yeah it was less than that. like when I looked at it recently when I looked at it again I looked at the proposal and like say they wanted a store and I said so they wanted a a, a WordPress theme and an e-commerce store and I said oh, first option is is the theme only which was dumb because that's not really an option I just fooled myself into thinking it was an option <laughs> right. it didn't even meet their minimum qualifications yeah. So that was great. Uh, and then the second option was, you know, the minimum qualifications, which is the theme in the store. And the third option, I'm trying to remember now, I think was a bunch of conversion work uh, in that one specifically. But I used this with another client last year as well. And the third option was eh, $6,000 above their budget, I think. And it provided features that they hadn't even thought of. But their main problem was that the old site didn't have any automation in it. They had to hand code like every little link to every different post to every different product on their site. And so jumping off that, I provided a bunch of extra automation for them for $6,000. And it took me about 60 minutes to do. So one thing I want to just jump in here with, because you mentioned that it doesn't meet the minimum requirement, but then in the last explanation, you also explained that uh, you understood what their problem was. And that was part of why you proposed these other features uh, I'm curious, how do you get down to that? How do you get down to the the why? I mean, this is something that Jonathan pushes a lot is, you know, it's, well, we want you to build this big, massive CRM system. And then, you know, you start to figure it out and you're like, you know what, there's a really good one over here that does everything you've talked about except one. And it's way cheaper than building your own. So how how do you get down to that why? How do you figure out, okay, this is the actual problem they're going to solve? Because they're not going to, most of the clients I've dealt with won't tell you that. They won't tell you. We're tired of hand coding all this stuff. They're just going to say, we need a new system that does these things. This is where you need to slow down and ask good questions. My counseling degree uh, is good here because I was taught to ask lots of questions. Well, you can use even stuff like the five whys method, right? Yeah, that, that's so why what I do this. Why, why, why? Uh, reflection questions. So they say, we're having trouble with the CRM. Oh, so the CRM is causing you trouble, right? And they'll say, yes, and they'll tell you more, right? Uh, and need to learn. I actually wrote about that a while ago. About I think it's called effective questioning methods. Is a series on my site, and I spent about a month talking about different questioning methods. 
and how to flow between them so that you ask that you ask good ones and most freelancers even when they ask some okay questions in the initial call they start to write the proposal and then they don't stop when they have a question and ask it they think i said i'd get this out today i actually never guarantee i'll get the proposal out today i might guarantee you see a draft of it or that I'll start it and then I'll have some more questions, but that's it because that's an, I'm just not going to get to it. I'm terribly slow at proposals. It'll sometimes takes weeks for me to get a proposal to you. And if you need it faster than that, you need the work faster, then you should probably find somebody else. That's really interesting. I've definitely made that mistake before where it's like, I told them I get the proposal tomorrow. And so I make some assumptions and then send them something that isn't exactly what they need. Well, I think, you know, I think the mindset behind that is like, well, this is my first opportunity to show that I, I'm a professional. I do things when I say I'm going yep. to do them. Right. Like that's the thinking. I, I think that's valid. Curtis, you ever find that that kind of sets you up to look like not as professional if, if the, if it takes longer than they're used to seeing? No. Like say when I'm on the phone with a client to say, when can I expect a proposal? And I'll look at my calendar and, you know, look at what I have to do. And I'll say, well, if I, I'm going to start it next Tuesday, but it's likely I'll have some more questions because I would like to do it right. And then I'll get back to you with some more questions. It may take a week or two to get through a proposal together. And that's part of the discovery process. So I work out of the six sections I said, I work with the client on everything except four and five, which are the options and the timeline. So we go through and we will define together where they actually get to work on the Google document with me. Once I've done the first draft, we talk like we define the current problem. So they'll even rewrite my language sometimes so that it's their language which is great. We'll go through the objectives as well together. We'll go through gauging success so that we're getting the right metrics. And then I add section four, the options and five timeline, just when they get the pricing. So you give them access to a Google Doc and allow them to collaborate on the proposal? Yep. Part of the discovery process. Gotcha. So the only part they're going to be waiting on then are the options in the timeline. Yeah. So usually if I'm saying I'll get you anything, it's I'll get you the first draft. And I usually say, I'll get you the first draft. I expect we're going to make corrections in this because there's always three things said. There's what I think I said, what I actually said, and what you heard. And the proposal, this document is to help get those down. So we're both understanding the same thing. So they'll have you know, marks all down the side and comments. And sometimes we'll attach some supporting documentation to it and a bunch of other stuff. The only thing I really stop them on is if they start adding 300 tasks to the objectives right? It's not install WordPress and install a theme and do this and do this and do this. It's, you know, have an e-commerce, yeah, be able to attach PDFs to uh, the emailed invoices. Okay, that's an objective as well, right? We do some of the high level stuff, but we don't get into like everything. And if they really feel they have to do that, then I just create a second document. We can work on that together. How do you sort of frame that second document? Is that, I mean, what do you call it? How do you describe the purpose of it? Let's call it a task list. And very few clients think about it. They say, oh, okay, that's the task list. I said, this just needs to be focused. This is the high level stuff. If you'd like to get some more detail, then that's fine. And so the objectives may say, you know, and, and see the task list. Um, but I don't actually attach that when I send the proposal. And very few clients really do that. I just say, you know, all these little things, that's all in there. You know, they say, well, I want to make sure Google Analytics is on my site. And I say, yeah, but when you buy a new car, you don't ask for the tires. Like the tires are included, right? Of course the tires are included. So there's a bunch of stuff that they unfortunately feel they need to include sometimes because they didn't mm-hmm. think they got it with the previous providers. But yeah, for me, when I think of it, I think it's the sheet where the client can put a whole bunch of stuff that I'm going to look at a little bit on and not spend a lot, as much time on because the real sales is in the proposal document. So you, you, you've talked about the why and you get down to the objectives and I can see that they're related, but I don't see where you actually put one in one place over the other. 
So, because it seems like this is a document that demonstrates, I understand your problem. I understand what you need. I'm going to provide this level of service. And so, you know, it's, it's yep. okay. So, you know, your objectives are, you know, you're going to have a working. Well, it's not just that. It's the objectives are selling them on their better future, right? Right. So with this site, you will be able to, we'll say, make more sales, right? And they Do look at that. Do you quantify that? It depends. I quantify things I can control. Uh, I can't guarantee they're going to, you know, have a 30% increase in sales because if they do zero marketing, then what am I supposed to do? Right. Right. The clients that really want that, then I make them that want like more harder numbers on it. I make them commit to marketing stuff, marketing spends. And I will even, uh, there's one client who wanted it and I said that they had to have a good blog post every week that I had to say was good essentially. And for everyone they didn't do, they owed me a thousand dollars. Oh, wow. Because they wanted me to also take payment based on their sales. And they said, what? I said, well, <laughs> if you're going to do it, then I need to guarantee that, that you're going to do it. Right. That makes so sense. They they backed out and basically said, no, we're never, like, we're actually probably not going to write. I was like, so the whole project's going to fail then. In a year, you're going to be wondering why the site doesn't make any sales. And it's because you did no marketing, but you're going to think the developer screwed you over. So I'm not interested in this. Yeah, I'm I'm super interested in how much of that kind of conversation gets baked into your proposal process. That seems like that really heads a lot of things off before they become problems. I mean, is that what you see or do you see things that still slip through despite having a pretty rigorous process? At some point every year I get into a project where I'm like, ah, oh, this I missed something, right? Sure. Sometimes you just don't know what it was. You finish off and you're like, like what could I have done differently? Other times you know, you said, oh, yeah, that's a red flag, but, you know, it won't happen to me. So, <laughs> hey, we've all done this, haven't we? Yes. Oh, I, I'll totally, this, you know, it's not a problem. I, I know the other developers had trouble here, but I, it won't happen to me. So <laughs> I'm trying to finish off one of those right now where, yeah, <laughs> they had a bunch of failed developing stuff before. And I said, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. And I can tell you exactly why they have failed development in their history. It's because they're paying the butt. That sounds like a red flag. If you catch yourself saying, oh, well, that, that couldn't happen to me. <laughs> That's a big red flag. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'm sort of reflecting on my own client work history and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah I do that too. <laughs> I know better than that. I'd never make such a dumb mistake. Yeah, my process won't let that happen, which is not nearly as true as we'd like to think it is. Yep. So in terms of formulating options. Have you found anything that helps? Like in the past, that's a place where I've gotten stuck because here, here's my thinking. I'm like, well, the solution is obvious. The solution is this. So, I mean, do I propose a watered down version of this as the entry level option? And then the thing I really want is option two, which as we all know from reading those millions of articles on pricing and persuasion that you try to drive people to the middle or high price option. Like, is, is there some framework you have for thinking about that, Curtis, or some things you found that help you think of sensible options? I have found that most clients at some point say, oh, and if we can, I'd really like to do this, whatever mm -hmm. that feature is, right? And that's usually a prime candidate for this is not required. This is just something they would like to do, right? Oh, a big dream would be to do whatever. And that usually would make it into the, say, second or third option. Occasionally, it is hard. I do not go hard and fast to always have to have three options before it goes, right? I spend some time on the options if I'm struggling with figuring out three. And if I can't, then I just send out the proposal and I don't worry about it. Another good one is, say, ongoing consulting. So with the e-commerce work, right? I'll be around 
to help fix problems maybe or to do conversion work or something like that would be the third option. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally, it can even be changing how your pricing is. So it could be, right, it's flat rate for option one and two and option three is a little bit less flat rate for percentage of sales, say, mm-hmm. or for you know, percentage based on conversion. And then you'd work at it for a longer period of time, say six months on conversion work and you get paid for a year. So you'd work on it for six months and still get paid for the following six months, a percentage based on the conversions. Nice. So this whole process, how do you start it? You know, somebody emails you or calls you and says, we have this problem. We want you to work on it for us. The first thing they do is they get an email that says, Something along the lines of, hey, that sounds good, but I need to make sure it's the right project for me. Here's nine questions. It's at least nine questions, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. And if I don't get a good response from those nine questions, I don't even go any further. And a lot of them are around why. Why are we doing this? What is your brighter future that you think you're going to get? What's your timeline? What's your budget? Who's the decision makers? What are we missing because of this? So if we do option A, what are we not doing? That might even be better. And if I don't get good responses, I don't even get on the phone with them. So one thing that I've run into with those particular questions and some of these other things is that, and and I completely agree with you, but I'm also going to fess up to another mistake that I've made. And that is that a lot of times they'll come, they don't really have a good why. They don't, they don't know what outcomes they want. They just know that they want some system that does some, something. And so as I talk to them and I kind of figure out, you know, why are you doing this? What outcomes do you want? how, what, what makes this a success? And they don't have those answers. I start pushing them to give those answers. And eventually they just start talking about going to somebody else, which is what I should have let them do. I think in some of these cases, yes, (laughs) but you know, I I've justified a couple of times taking the client because it's, well, they're going to pay somebody to do this, but yeah, in about half of the cases. And I think I've been fortunate that it's only half of the cases I've had these clients come back and basically talk like I ripped them off where in reality, they didn't know what they wanted out of the system. So I built them what they asked for. And then, you know, they just... Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it is your fault. You decided to take them on. Yeah. Knowing that they didn't have any good outcomes. I would just say, hey, this doesn't sound like a good project to me. It doesn't sound like you know what this is going to accomplish. I'm interested in successful projects, not failed ones. So I think this is headed to a failed project currently. If you'd like to come talk to me about a successful one, I'd love to talk more. Yeah, the the other thing is, is that... Even the ones that didn't come back and basically insinuate that I ripped them off, there was nothing to show. And I wanted to be able to say, hey, I worked on that and it was successful. And there was nothing to show because the project kind of languished after I was done working on it because they never launched it. Yeah, yeah, and you have times when maybe you need to pay some bills, so you have to take something like that. But I think that is fewer and far between. Most people take them on way too often. I just say no. So out of all the people that get in touch with me, I probably only get on the phone with mm, 30% of people. Everyone else gets referred or I just say no to them. And then out of that, I only send estimates to or proposals to 20% of people. And I usually win everything I send. So you bring them on board, you send them the, the questions, they answer them to your satisfaction, and then you get on, we get on the phone. Yeah, yeah, have to get on the phone. I use a system called Calendly that books call times. And if my call times don't work, then we're not a good fit. I don't worry about it. And we have to have at least one 30-minute phone call. If out of that, we have enough uh, information to really to do a proposal, then we'll start that. If not, then I usually sit down and decide, like, how much more is this going to take? Is this going to take a bunch of discovery? In which case, 
you know, it's a paid project and we talk about that. If it, you know, I can put a decent proposal together, then I do, uh, and we'll work on it together. Usually over the course of a week or two, maybe, and then they'll get the pricing out of it. That makes sense. On, on the subject of pricing, I know a lot of people have the following experience, especially if they use some sort of software to present the proposal that shows that like tracks people's uh, like where they spend time on the proposal. I think uh, I think BidSketch does that, or yeah, I know there's others that do. And so what I hear is, uh, so people open the proposal. And they, they just jump down to where the pricing is. Like that's how they kind of process all the information <laughs> in the proposal, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, I'm loving the fact that the way you work, people can't do that because you have forced them to be, you know, collaborators in creating that everything that goes above the pricing. So I'm assuming the pricing shows up where, when you present the options, right? You've got problems, objectives, measures of success, and then options. Is that where the pricing goes? If I was to make this one document, then it would be in the middle, right? So uh-huh. I gave you the exact order it would go in and the responsibilities are right at the end. Yeah. The way I do it is we work on everything except the options and the timelines and we work on them together. Uh-huh. And then when I send you the proposal, so we've spent however much time working on that. When I send you the proposal, it really only shows you the options and timelines. That's it. And I it references see. here. Here's the document attached to this email that is the is the proposal. We've spent say all the rest of the time working on the proposal, so we are intimately familiar with every detail of it, right? And the options may reference, you know, this is for option one does these things, and it only references some the high level objectives for the option. That's it. I think that's great. I mean, by breaking up into phases like that, you avoid that behavior I was just talking about where people just kind of zoom down to find the pricing and then maybe go back and review the supporting detail. Well, the reason yeah. they do that they is... They worked on it together too, right? They know it. They know yeah, the supporting they, detail. Right. They can't not know it because you, you kind of led them through that process to get to the point where you could even come up with sensible pricing. Yeah. And I don't move on until they said, yes, I'm happy with that. This looks like it's good to me. Well, there's yeah. so many people that they go out, they ask for proposals, they get you know, a proposal in a couple of days from three or four people. And then, yeah, I mean, they look over what's offered, they look over the price, and then they make a decision. And so, you know, and a lot of times it's, yeah, whatever number's lowest that gets me most of what I want wins. And then they can't figure out why the project's over budget or why, you know, they're not getting what they want. And in reality, it's because... Nobody walked through the process of actually figuring that out with them. Yep. I even had, even just recently, I, had, I sent my initial questions to someone and they, in their mind, they said, I read your questions and I said, this is way bigger than I thought. And they sat down and they answered them, but they stopped and they looked through my pricing and they said, okay, this is my budget, which was well below my pricing. Uh, and they said, is there anything I can do though to achieve these objectives? So I just said, hey, here's some options you may look at that might hit your pricing. Um, but it said, like they got, they spent a week looking at my questions and looking at their business and getting better whys for what they're going to do, which was good for their business in general. That's really great. Now I do have to ask, cause I know somebody's sitting there and going, okay, so I figure out what they want. And then how do I actually know what to charge them? How do I know what timeline to put on there? Cause they're not that great at estimating. Uh, some of it is practice for most freelancers. It's twice as much as you think you should charge. Most people do not charge very well or they don't charge the appropriate rates because they're scared. They're scared that it's the last client that's ever going to come to them. And if they don't say yes to this one or get this work, then no one will ever work with them again, which is not true. Yeah, it just depends. I charge well above 
standard industry rates for my that most people would expect with WordPress stuff, like well above. Um, I charge usually within line with the high end agencies. I charge usually in line with them. But I don't, yeah, pricing away is hard to say unless I actually talk like how much are you charging for this? One way people look at it is your hourly rate. And I suppose I have an hourly rate. I just never actually use it. I don't work hourly. I work by the project. But it's something I look at later on just to look at the overall profitability of that project versus, say, other things I'm doing. So when, you, when you're figuring out the price on some of these projects, then you just kind of go by gut feel. This is so complicated or so much work. Or do you bring well, one it of my questions is or? their budget too, though, right? right? So if they come back and I say my budget is $1,000 and they want some big system, I say, well, that's not going to work. Right. And then I don't even go past that initial email. I say, hey, that's not going to work. Look at these options over here. You know, if they come to me and they say, you know, I've got about fifteen to, you know, maybe $20,000, that's what I've got. Then, you know, my first option might be at the lower end of what they have. My second option would be at the higher end of what they have. And my third option would probably be above what they thought they had. So I have found repeatedly that clients actually have more once you show more value. They just didn't think they were going to get more value for more money. Have you tracked that, Curtis? Like, do you have a rough percentage of how many clients go for option one, two, three? Uh, almost most clients will say 80% go to option two, <laughs> which is includes some of their dreams typically when I do it. And I'd say the majority of the rest go for option three, right? And there's a few that pick option one, which is just the bare bones of what they wanted. It's That's funny because I was, uh, you know, most of my questions when we were t- thinking about, or when we, I was thinking about proposals is were around, okay, well, how, how do you deal with them going, what you offered isn't in line with what we're willing to pay for it. And your whole process totally short circuits that. Yeah, then you, ha- you had the wrong discussion up front then, or you didn't ask the question. I did that. I did that just before Christmas, actually. I got a reference from another client in a similar field, and they, like, they've always paid well, and they had a budget. And they said, oh, my friend would love to work with you. You know, I've already talked. I said, sure. And I got through the proposal process, and I sent it over, and he's like, wow, that's like 10 times what I expected which is totally my fault. I did not ask, I assumed, because his friend, because my current client had the budget that he would, which is often safe, but I should have asked. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a sort of you know cognitive shortcut. Are there others you've seen as you've kind of developed your process to this point, common mistakes or shortcuts that you should never take the shortcut? I even out of that, I said, you know, I just reiterated to myself, I have to ask those questions every single time. Right. That is, I always have to ask my questions. I didn't and it bit me in the butt and I have no one to blame but myself. That's probably the biggest one. And then don't rush, slow down. I am terribly slow at getting proposals. When you send me an email, it might be a month before we get a proposal to you. If that doesn't work, then fine. I'm not worried about it. I have consistently got slower at doing proposals because that makes sure that that person, they may even have other proposals while they're waiting for me, but the longer they wait, the more likely they are saying, no, this is the right person for me. And they will wait. And usually I will get the work. Even in fact, when I've helped friends with their proposal and they've sent it in faster than me and I've still won the work after. So they sent a very similar proposal to what I would send, at least with all the same details, maybe not formatted exactly the same. And I have still won the proposal. Why do you think that is? I think part of it is probably my confidence when we talk, which even comes across in the podcast. Uh, I've always been, I remember having a terrible resume and the person said, oh, well, we just thought we'd see you anyways because you had some of the qualifications. But by the time we finished talking to you, you were like the person we wanted. But also that I'm just willing to wait, like possibly loss aversion as well. I'm just saying, you know, I'm booked. If I if someone emailed me right now, I'd say, well, first of all, I've got a kid coming in a couple of weeks. So I'm taking a month off. And after that, I'm booked till September. So if you want anything from me, it's not happening until September. 
and I'm going to take a month to get a proposal. But at this point, I'd say I'm going to probably take two months to get you a proposal. So I'm taking a month off and it's just not, in many ways, not high on my priority list, right? I only take two calls with new clients every week. That's it. And if they're full, you have to wait. So besides going too fast and not asking the right questions up front, what are some of the things that people are going to get hung up on when they're writing a proposal? They're probably going to worry about compromises as well, right? So in the rates or in the timelines, if the client comes back to the on the proposal, they're going to offer to discount their rates, which is a bad idea. If you think of it, then don't do it. Yes, I, I agree. I've done that before too. And then they, they think they can haggle over everything. Yeah. I even had, I had an agency, a local agency. I forget. I think I was probably charging $150 an hour at that point. And they said, oh, we pay everyone 50. And so, you know, how much can you do for us? <laughs> I looked at them and was like, what? No, no, no. I, I can sell my time for $150 an hour. Why, why would I work for less? That seems like a dumb idea, doesn't it? Well, yeah. So, so if you'd like me to work, this is what I charge. If you need to charge more to your clients, I don't care. That is not my problem. That does bring up another question. And I don't know how much subcontracting you've done, you know, as far as farming any work out to subcontractors. But I have talked to several people about doing value-based pricing just, you know, because we have Jonathan on the show and he's kind of sold me on that. The issue that I run into though is then they're like, well, I have subcontractors and I pay them hourly. And so if the work goes over, then, you know, I'm stuck not making any money or losing money. That doesn't sound like your problem. Well, I know that we have freelancers that listen to the show that do subcontract. And so if they give a, a straight bid on a proposal, I guess the proposal could be hourly. But Then if they're not doing it, like if they're doing a straight bid on a proposal and the contractors go over, that means you estimated poorly. Right. Right. You need to go back and redo the estimate. For some agency, if they say, well, you know, that's more than we charge, it's not my problem if that's what you charge. Yeah. That this is what I charge. If you would like me to do it because you think I'm the best, then that's great. You know, I've subcontracted a bunch of subcontracting at the beginning of the year for a former client who had a bad, a bad time with another contractor. And so I was basically playing the safety net. I barely looked at the project. I sent it off to another contractor that I know, and he did all the work and I just tripled his pricing and sent it on because he didn't charge very much. And he went over at one point over enough even with my drastic markup that I lost a little bit on it. And that's not my client's problem. I just, it happened. I need to estimate better again or communicate more clearly with people that subcontract for me. Yeah. And that's it. And, and actually I even sent the client to him. The client was like, well, we're getting, you know, I don't have the budget for this. And I said, you want you to just work directly with this contractor and I won't be insurance anymore. How long are your proposals usually like page length? Two pages max. And then the options are in a separate like web screen, web view. That's it. Why do you put them in a separate web view? Because that's how my system works. So I put the invoice together in 17 hats or the S, the proposal, where they can pick the options. And attached to that is the PDF with the uh, actual proposal we worked on in Google Docs. And when they click on the link, which they get out of 17 hats, it takes them to a web, like a web page, and they can see the proposal. They can select which one they want. They hit next, and then it takes them to the contract and to the payment, and they're done. Great. And you just make them pay the whole thing up front? It depends. I still do weekly pricing on some stuff. Uh, otherwise, it's a it's a hundred percent upfront. I'm curious. I know this is a little off the topic of proposals, but for the hundred percent upfront, do you get people pushing back on that, or do they know that upfront? I guess coming in, you tell them this is how I work. You're going to pay it all upfront. Yeah, when people do say this is like, oh, I don't feel comfortable with that, we just split it up into weekly. Okay. So, and I'm still paid on Friday for Monday. 
right? So it's still upfront. It's just smaller chunks upfront. Right. And if they don't pay you on Friday, you don't work on Monday? Well, within reason, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, like I have a, you know, a long-term client and, you know, I didn't get paid yesterday till partway through the day, but I've worked with them for like 20 weeks so far this year and they've always paid. So did I worry about it? No, I didn't worry about it. Yeah. Right? I've used worked that with another place where like we worked for a couple of weeks fine. And then one week they were late and the second week they were late and I like in a row and I just emailed them at, on Monday and said, I'm not working until I get paid. And they didn't pay me till Tuesday and they still like, that's the rest of the week they had. And they even asked, like, oh, what do we, like, so are you working next week? No. I told people I couldn't work this week because I was working for you. You not paying is not my problem, right? And they said, okay. And I went and didn't you know, worked for the last bit of the week, which was, you know, halfway through Tuesday and Wednesday. So, and they even, like, caught me because I usually work, like, from 7 a.m. till like, 1 or 2 p.m. Uh, straight. And so they only caught me, like, near the end of my day, which meant they only got, like, an hour or two. All right. I want to go back to your nine or so questions that you ask. And in particular, you mentioned the budget is something that you use to put together your options and pricing. If they refuse to answer that, do you just not work with them? It depends on what they say. Some clients will say, oh, I have no idea. Like I literally don't have any idea, in which case I would reply something like, okay, well, does, you know, $5,000 sound expensive or $10,000 or 15 or 20. And at some point they go, oh, that sounds expensive. And that's where the value proposition changed in their mind. But I very rarely don't get an answer to that question. I think that's because just underneath it says, what's your budget or what is the budget you have allotted for this project? And then the next paragraph is budget is usually the hardest question, but it's something that needs to at least have an idea on. Do you have a thousand dollars and we need to only find existing solutions that are glued together to meet your goals? You're going to have to give up on some of the specifics if you want that. Or do you have 30,000 or more to spend and we can build whatever we want? So even a range of where you think things start to feel expensive helps me know. Right. Curtis, I'm curious about measures of success. I mean, that's for sure kind of related with the accountability slash responsibilities part of the project. How typically are you measuring success and how much of that is reliant on the work you do versus what clients do? You kind of touched on that earlier, but I'm curious for more detail on that. So for the, say the client that, or the automation was the real problem, we said we would give them a new WordPress site that they would be able to create a category. And when they create a membership, they could check a box and it would automatically create the membership for them. And that we would automatically link all their products together for them. Those were the real gauging success pieces. I can't guarantee their traffic and I can't guarantee their sales. If I need a guaranteeing in that, then I'm going to have to longer term look at like conversion work for them to get them to the sales they want. For another client, it was, we'll make your site pass, you know, Google's automated uh, mobile checking because they had no mobile theme and that's how we looked at it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like it's a spectrum. It's, there's no sort of one size fits all thing. I mean, do you, do you try to make sure that the measures of, of success are things that you can control? Is that your default or? Yeah. Yeah. You. Okay. Yes. It'd be like me saying, I guarantee you that Philip is going to write a book next week. How am I going to do that? I'm going to like go down to Philip's house and like make sure he sits at his computer all the time. No, I could, I suppose, but that's the only way I might be able to guarantee it. And then I might even have to say, well, I'm going to help him type it too. So that's the only thing, right? I couldn't guarantee that. That, that would really I guarantee help. that I email I... Philip every day and tell him to write. That's it. <laughs> I, I appreciate the suggestion, Curtis. I'll, uh, I'll give you <laughs> forward travel details and I'm trying to get 
version two of the positioning manual out the door here. So that would really help. He's got about <laughs> nine questions for you before he to do that, though. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, and I, see, I see your point. And one of them is I want a chair with that puffy pillow on it, too. <laughs> nice. Well, we, can, we can arrange that. But, yeah, I see your point. The, the default is try to focus on things that you control, not not things that are out of your hands. And that, that sure makes sense to me. Yeah, I see <laughs> A pure development project, say you're adding unit testing, right? You can say, you know, we're going to get to X percent coverage, right? Or we're going to cover the main business logic in this, in your app. I would think there's some correlation between being able to price at a premium and the measure of success is something that really impacts the client's business in a positive way. So Anything, it's, right? it's something that is really valuable to them, right. then you can charge a premium. Right. If it's not valuable to them, then you can't. It's, if it's not valuable to them, then they just want the quickest estimates they can and they want to move on. So that, say the whole being slow is part, is part of my client vetting process. I only want to work on projects that someone is really invested in. That also often gets me to the client where we say, hey, you know, this is a problem. So I actually, you know, I rebuilt this one chunk of code I already did. So, you know, we're behind and they say, well, I want it to be done right. Yep. That's a good point. Really good qualification criteria. If it's important enough to wait for, it's probably important. Yep. All right. Well, anything else we should uh, go into before we get to picks? Don't do RFPs. <laughs> I'm sure those dovetail seamlessly with your process. <laughs> yeah, don't do Yeah. No, not at all. Occasionally, that's not true. So one client I've worked with, I'm still working with just now, they sent me an RFP to start and I said, hey, I don't do RFPs. They're a waste of everyone's time. You usually have a preferred contractor. I didn't help you write it, so it's not me. So, you know, good luck. I don't like wasting my time. And they came back and said, I've never done this web thing. Like, can you tell me more? And I agreed. I'd, I looked through RFP. I said, you know, I'll put 10 minutes. I'll look through it and just look at it. And they had like idea one was stupid. Idea two was dumb. Idea three was going to cost them an extra, you know, 20 grand. And idea four was also a bad idea. And I just said, here's why these are all bad ideas. And he said, I got estimates already on those. Though. They're still bad ideas. <laughs> And I am working with him um, above his budget after, you know, short-circuiting the RFP process. That's the only thing I send is I don't do RFPs. Here's the reasons. And then if they never get back to me, they never get back to me. That's fine. All right. Well, I know you wrote a book on this, or I think you wrote a book on this. I did. Where do people find it? At curtismichael.ca. It's under the shop menu at the top. It's called Writing Proposals That Win Work. Awesome. And if people have questions, can they tweet at you or email you or what? They can. They can tweet at me uh, or email me. I get a little slow on email and I will be slower coming up in the next new few weeks as the baby comes. But yep, I get to respond to all of those. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to picks. Maybe we should give one away. What do you want to do, Curtis? Do you want to have people comment on the episode? Sure. Let's have them comment on the episode and tell us the best proposal they've sent, why it was valuable to their clients. All right. And after a week, I will go through and get someone. Uh, so someone will go through and we'll give a, one of the copies of the book away. Sounds good. All right. Let's go ahead and do picks. Philip, do you have some picks for us? I have a pick, a uh, French comedy called Superchondriac. It was laugh out loud funny. It's about a hypochondriac guy who um, is just hilarious. And uh, that's all I'll say. It was a, it was a funny kind of French uh, romantic comedy type movie. Highly recommended. All right. I've got a pick. Uh, I just read a book. Well, I'm almost done with the book. It's called Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And it has been really terrific as far as helping me kind of get an idea behind 
why I do what I do and, you know, what's driving it, what's important. So uh, can you share your why with us, Chuck? So I haven't actually gotten, I'm, I have like an hour and a half or two hours left in the audiobook, and I haven't gotten to the part where he actually talks about how to figure out your why, though I'm kind of getting the feeling that it is somewhere around, I feel like uh, in a lot of ways, software is going to shape the way that uh, the world moves ahead over the next several years, and I want to be able to provide to people the opportunities and the means to better shape the world. And, you know, I, I haven't quite condensed that down to what I'm doing other than the podcasts and how that's going to affect the podcast and how in particular I'm going to shape things to make that work. But that that's kind of where I'm leaning. But I, like I said, I haven't gotten to the part where he talks about how to find your why and it may turn out to be something else. You should also read The Art of Work by Jeff Goins, which does it got, he calls it your purpose or your story. Yep. Okay. Good I'll stuff in there about how to figure it out as well. Cool. What are your picks, Curtis? I'm going to pick Baron Fig, specifically their Squire Pen, which I just got a while ago and is excellent. And their pocket notebooks, because they're just slightly smaller than a standard pocket notebook. And they, I haven't lost one, whereas I lose the field notes because they fall out of my pockets sometimes when I'm riding my bike. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to check these out too. I always, always wind up losing mine as well. All right. Well, if people want to check out what you're up to or hire you or find... Uh, your blog or anything like that, where should they go? should go to curtismchale.ca. All right. We'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Curtis. Thanks for having me back. All right. We will catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.